Season 2 of Breaking Beta is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. After the episode, use the code BETA15 for 15% off of your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in your show notes to have the code automatically applied. Gnarly Nutrition. Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. Positive. Negative. All right. Start it up. What's wrong with this thing? That's really cool. Uh, I am. Now really pull, not like a girl. You know what? Pull this. I am pulling. Just needs to warm up a little. You might have to pull harder than you think to get it warmed <laughs> up, Paul. Uh, today, we are looking at three different reviews. Uh, we started with two, and I ended up pulling a third uh, right before we got started here. So we're looking at two main reviews. One is a critical review. One is a systematic review. And both of these are looking at what science says about warming up for sport. Uh, first, we have the current approaches on warming up for sports performance, a critical review um, by Maria Gill et al. Essentially, it's a group of MDs and PhDs. Uh, it was in the National Strength and Conditioning Association Journal in 2019. And purpose was, in this brief review, we critically analyze the emerging methods and strategies of warm-up that have been investigated and used before competitive events. And I think that's a good distinction for before competitive yeah. events because, you know, sometimes you look at warm-up before training or, you know, in our case, either a competition climbing or, you know, just going out and trying to send your project. I think, you know, there's outcomes that we're trying to ha have happen for both yep. of those cases that maybe we aren't necessarily chasing when we're training. Totally, totally. Going and trying to send your project is also a performance session just like a competition. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I definitely draw an analog between between those two things. Um, and next, uh, because most warm-up papers deal specifically with lower body readiness, we're looking at a systematic review of the effects of upper body warm-up on performance and injury. Authors are McCrary, Ackerman, and Halaki uh, from the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2015. This systematic review was conducted to identify the impact of upper body warm-up on performance and injury prevention outcomes. And I think this is an interesting idea because we very often hear, you know, warm up does this, but not this, or it does this and not this. And injury is very often thrown in there as either people believe warm up 100% needs to happen to reduce injury, or people are very against you can't reduce injury with warm up. So be interesting to see what they have to say. Yeah, I'm psyched. All right, we got a lot to cover, so let's jump into this thing. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Lucky two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. And with our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? Ready, 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 ready? I forgot to warm up, but I guess I'm ready. You? <laughs> I am all warmed up, ready to go. <laughs> um, first, I think it's really important to say here why we aren't looking specifically at climbing papers. Um, we've spent a lot of the season looking at climbing specific things, and there just really isn't much of anything when it comes to warming up for climbing. There's lots of suggestions and recommendations and how they warmed up for these tests within the papers, but there's nothing saying this warming up helps you perform better. Um, a recent Nugget podcast with Jared Vaggy discussed the, you know, 100 moves or 50 cyclic moves, uh, 50 on each side to warm up your pulleys. And that advice comes from a paper from Schweitzer in 2001 that's looking at the biomechanical properties of the full crimp grip. So that paper was very specifically for warming up the pulleys to prepare for the full crimp. Um, you know, he mentions in that episode, if we want, we, we should be looking to research to guide us for warming up. 
but that's really it. That's the whole of it right there. So I'm not sure we should be looking to climbing specific research to warm up for climbing when that's all we have. Nah, because we have so much more for all this other, all these other sports or all these other activities. Like there's got to be some base principles we can pull out from, uh, from this information and at least have a good, good directed idea of where to take things. Yeah, totally. There's so much more to warm up for than just mm-hmm. the full cramp grip. In fact, I, I, I don't, you know, I've warmed up for the full cramp grip like twice in my entire climbing career. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we, we look at other sports and, um, there's a lot of research on warming up in other sports in general. So you and I are both going to look at some reviews. There's mm-hmm. quite a few of them out there. Um, we should start by mentioning that not all reviews are the same. So can you kind of tell us a difference here, Paul, between a systematic review and a critical review? Yeah. So this first paper we're doing is the Gil et al. paper is a critical review, which is pretty much just a literature review of a good deal of papers on a certain topic. So there's going to be a little less stringent process and how they set up the paper on how they find the uh how they find the papers even a lot of the critical review, they're just pulling papers on the topic. And when you look at a systematic review, they're much more particular about the keywords they use. There's an inclusion Mm -hmm. exclusion criteria process where they start with this big base of papers and whittle it down to the papers they're actually going to use. And because they do that in the systematic review. So when I say the systematic review, I'm referring to the McGrary Ackerman and Halaki paper. For the systematic review, because they do that, they can actually pool the individuals for every study. So you can actually get statistically a larger sample size, which may lead to the ability to have more quantifiable numbers attached to some of these things for better or for worse. So I think those are the two big distinctions between a a critical review and then a systematic review. Uh, Did I get that pretty good? Anything else you want to add? No, I think that's it. And if if we want to like create a hierarchy of stringency, maybe it goes like um, critic, or maybe it goes systematic review, then critical review, then the Breaking Beta podcast. <laughs> yeah, all out. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, you want to kind of talk us through a little bit of how they, you know, what they included and what how they determined what they were including in these papers. Sure. So for the uh, critical review paper, they were looking at two different types of cate- two different categories for a warm up, either a passive or active warm ups. So you know, for the passive warm up, that involves pretty much just manipulating the body temperature or trying to maintain the body temperature. So that's going to lead mm-hmm. to certain physiological um, changes or keeping certain physiological statuses that can relate to performance. And then the active warm up could be exercise, stretching. Um, cardiovascular work, so on and so forth. So they just so, so for the um, Gill et al. paper, they looked at a couple topics. So they looked at stretching. They looked at post activation potentiation. Foam rolling was in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So um, I know we talked a bit about stretching in a previous episode on season one. So I'm sure we're probably just going to gloss over that a little bit in this one. So if you want to hear us wax poetic about stretching, you can look at our. Uh, episode from the first season but so yeah I'll, I'll give you the basic findings later on of what they found in the stretching but cool. definitely if you want to know more about it or if you're you're heated about it like stretching is not included in a warm-up then <laughs> by all means go listen to that episode yeah so basically for this critical review they found a good amount of papers on both post-activation potentiation dynamic stretching static stretching and then the use of external heating gar- garments and looked at how that applied to performance measures and a little bit as to for injury reduction as well. But a big mm-hmm. one for the uh, Gill et al. paper where they were looking at how this affected performance. So they combined all this research and gave us a brief breakdown of the findings from all from a good amount of the papers related to uh, these topics. Yep. And then for the uh, the systematic review paper, which was the McCrary, Ackerman, and Halaki paper, that was the one that was a bit more stringent in how they found the papers. So they searched for papers that contained the terms warm-up, upper extremity, upper limb, back, trunk, neck, spine, shoulder, elbow, 
arm, wrist, hand, and forearm. So all those latter ones after the warm up were combined with warm up in the search terms. So that's how you get that's how you get that first pool of papers in a uh, database. Uh, some of the databases they searched were Web of Science, which covers papers from 1980 to present, Medline, 1946 to present, uh, Sport Discus, 1985 onward, uh, Psych Info, 1806 onward. That's wild to me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 1806. How are they warming up in 1806? <laughs> Running away from the wolf that was chasing them. <laughs> Um, and then uh, Cochrane from 1966 to present. So a big database of papers. Um, they ended up finding at first 1,437 papers. They removed the duplicates. Then they screened the records. Then they excluded certain records. And then when they finally found the full text articles that they could look at and uh, see if they were eligible for review, they found 56 papers. They had to exclude 25 more. So they ended up with 31 total papers. Wow, that is that's worth just looking at for a second. If they originally got a search result of a thousand forty some papers, and through these stringent methods, they narrow it down to essentially twenty five papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a that's a lot of work before before you've typed a single word. Yep. And by doing that, you know these papers are really going to pertain to the topic you're trying yeah. to get information on. Another couple things I thought they did was cool in the systematic review is they graded um, each of the papers according to the Pedro scale. So I'm going to pull up Pedro scale here for uh, just to explain what it is. So it is a process you can use to rank papers based on how high the quality of the paper is. So you're looking mm. at qualities where one, the edgeability criteria is specified Two, subjects were randomly allocated to groups. Three, allocation was concealed, so was there blinding. Four, the groups were similar at baseline regarding the most important issues. So obviously, if you start with two groups that are wildly different from the starting point, it's going to be tough to tell if any meaningful change happened with the intervention. Um, There's blinding of all subjects. There's blinding of all therapists who administered the therapy or investigators, so on and so forth. There's the blinding of other measure of other measure measurers, um, and the measures of at least one key outcome were obtained from more than 85% of the subjects. So pretty much there wasn't a huge dropout rate in the study. Um, all subjects for whom outcome measures were available received the treatment or control condition. So there was no just odd ways of administering right. these intervention groups. Uh, um, the results of the between groups statistical comparisons are reported. And then the study provides both point measures and measures of variability for at least one key outcome. So these are 11 qualities. They removed the first quality because that's more related to uh, validity of the, of the um, measurement, not exactly the quali- quality of the construction. <clears throat> Excuse me. The quality of the construction of the study. So from 2 to 11, so there are 10 points. And if they did each one of these points, they got a point. So they classified these studies as excellent if they had nine to 10 of those points, good six for six to eight of those points, fair for four to five of those points, and poor if there are less than four of those points involved in the study. So by looking at that scale, we can kind of see what papers can we really take meaningful information yeah. from. Yeah, that's really cool. It It's nice to know when you're looking at these reviews, um, you know, it's nice to know that some of them aren't as stringent by design as others. Mm-hmm. And you have to determine which type of review it is you want to look for um, when you are, you know, trying to find out what the research says. Yep. And one other thing the systematic review did, and again, this just all just shows how much more stringent and how much more goes into this systematic review. Not that critical reviews aren't important. We think they're very important. That's why we're talking about one of them, but they're Mm -hmm. just different. We got to know why. So as they looked at these 31 papers and looked at the topics, uh, they ranked the strength of the evidence for each of these topics. So Mm. if they rank something level one, that means there's strong research-based evidence. There's a lot of evidence out there. They rank something as level two. There's moderate research-based evidence. There's at least one high-quality randomized controlled trial and one or more low-quality. And those low-quality trials are pretty consistent in their findings. Level three is there's limited evidence. There's one RCT. 
And maybe there's some contradicting evidence in all these papers about that topic. Mm. And then level four is there's no research-based evidence, no randomized controlled trial. So these recommendations or these facts or points that they're making, they back it up with the level or strength of the evidence, which is also a useful um, tool to evaluate all these. Yeah, absolutely. That's very cool. The uh, The third paper that I pulled uh, just before we recorded is also a systematic review with a meta-analysis and recommendations for future research. Um, it's very similar stringency as, as this review that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And this one was specifically, its title is Upper Body Post-Activation Performance Enhancement for Athletic Performance. So very specifically also looking at the upper body and more at post-activation potentiation. Um, that one's from Finley et al. in Sports Medicine in the Journal of Sports Medicine in 2021. So um, I'll also just give you the results of that since you essentially already explained what what that sort of review looks like. Cool. Yeah. So they pretty much went through the same process because that's the systematic review process. So yep, yeah. exactly. All right. Uh, let's take a commercial break and we'll come back and discuss some of the findings in all three of these reviews. Let's do it. Please. All right, I really need a break here, okay? Like many of us who are focused on performance, I'm a creature of habit. I spent the first 45 years of my life always choosing chocolate over vanilla, every single time. Well, not anymore. Gnarly Vanilla Way changed all that. Whether it's sprinkled over my breakfast cereal or blended with fruit, gnarly creatine, and gnarly collagen for a pre-session snack, vanilla has taken over as the flavor of choice. Responsibly sourced, nothing artificial, and also available in a vegan version, gnarly protein comes in a steel can that's infinitely recyclable. The nutrition science is good, and they care about the environment. Now, don't get me wrong. I still keep a can of chocolate protein in the cabinet because mixing chocolate and vanilla together is the best recovery protein drink around. You just have to try it for yourself. Use code BETA15, that's B-E-T-A-1-5, for 15% off your next order at GoGnarly.com or click the link in the show notes to have the code automatically applied. Let's all go back to work, for Christ's sake, okay? Okay, we are back. And uh, one thing I want to say before we start looking at these reviews is that anytime we're looking in other sports, there's a lot more research on the lower body than there is on the upper body. Um, and, and even when you do move into looking at the upper body, it's almost always push related mm -hmm. as opposed to pull related. Um, that surprised me when I first looked into it. Um, years ago, trying to you know find uh, articles about power development in the upper body, particularly pull power, and there's almost nothing. It's it's mm -hmm. very hard to find. Um, so I do want to mention that as a you know reason why we would go looking for other sports and why it's so hard to find evidence. Yeah, it's. I wonder if maybe just the complexity of measuring that as opposed to pushing or just. Yeah. Could be. And I think, you know, most sports, if we look at them, whether they're throwing or um, football or, you know, almost all of the other major sports involve more pushing than they do pulling. Yeah. Uh, climbing's kind of an anomaly there. Uh, you know, when I went to, when I had Dan John on the Power Company podcast and I went to his gym and trained with those guys that morning, it was a group of throwers, I think shot putters. Um, they were all giant humans <laughs> and, and they were doing a pushing workout that day. And we started talking about, uh, pressing versus pulling. And then we had a little like pull off and, and I could pull a much larger percentage over my body weight than they could, uh, drastically. What'd y'all do for the pull-up? Just weighted pull-ups oh, and, yeah, you know, a, a couple of body weight pull-ups were hard for them. And, you know, I could do, I was doing you know, almost 200% body weight. So yeah. they were, they were all blown away at the difference, but it's mm -hmm. definitely a sport specific thing. 
right? You know, specific adaptation to impose demands, right? Yep. All right, let's look at the uh, the findings from current approaches on warming up for sports performance, a critical review. Um, I've just got bullet lists here mm-hmm. of things we found and, you know, when there's something we should probably discuss further, feel free to stop me. Cool. Yeah, I've got certain things highlighted, but I'm sure when you go through your list, that'll bring up the highlight stuff. Okay. So they say that more than, number one, more than 80% of published research shows positive effects of warming up on physical performance. I think that's a, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope there aren't a ton of people out there still saying you don't ever need to warm up. Um, they immediately talk about stretching and it's sort of the same thing we saw in our episode, static stretching, less than 10 seconds per repetition, less than 30 seconds per target muscle, um, Mm -hmm. at a tolerable intensity, something like that. Dynamic stretching, uh, 30 seconds per repetition, seven minutes total duration. And this doesn't compromise either ballistic or long effort performance, which I think is important. So dynamic stretching seems to be more valuable. Static stretching still can. And, you know, and when we build in our warm up processes, I feel like the dynam- dynamic stretching just checks a little bit more boxes, too. There's a little bit yeah. more multi joint coordination. We're moving things a little quicker. We're moving with a little more intention. So that kind of helps balance some of that as well. Yeah. If I'm adding static stretching into a warm up, it's almost always spe- to get into a specific position or if they have some specific mobility deficit that we are actively trying to work on at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they mention post-activation potentiation here as the literature saying, um, take a maximum stimulus that lasts less than 30 seconds, rest one to 10 minutes, and then an explosive exercise after. Um, So say, uh, for the folks who aren't familiar with post-activation potentiation, essentially that's saying a maximal effort work followed by a rest, followed by some dynamic thing will improve the performance of the dynamic thing. Yeah. And one of the hypotheses for how this happens is when the muscle contracts, we create bridges between these uh, different components of the muscles called actin and myosin. And the more and faster we can create these bridges, it means we can create faster contractions and increase our rate of force development. Yeah. So, so they're saying, it, you know, it's a good idea as a warm up before an explosive exercise. A couple, one interesting study I want to pull out of this section that I thought just, you know, made sense, but it was a cool little ex, or a ex, example of why we need to keep things pretty specific is they did a squat exercise, three reps mm. at about 87% of the one RM for swimmers, but it didn't improve swimming performance. So that does suggest that maybe when we think about exercise selections for this potentiation, it needs to be specific, quote unquote, in some way to what we want to improve our performance in. Right. Yeah. Good call for sure. Um, probably a similar thing for a lot of climbers, you know, Mm -hmm. that the, the squat isn't going to see much. Yeah. One other thing too, is the rest in between the, um, in between the application of that activation stimulus to the performance. It's going to change depending on the individual, uh, the activity, but you got to kind of be aware of that and make sure you're not doing things too close together where you're still going to be fatigued from the post-activation potentiation or too far away because this change is transient and it will fade in time. So with experimentation, with a little bit more research on your end, uh, just make sure you're resting the appropriate amount of time to really have the effect that this intervention, you know, causes. Yeah. Whether you're a coach or athlete, I think Mm -hmm. that's something you have to play with for each individual that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also in this study go into external heating garments. And I actually think this is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, They mentioned that warm clothing does help to, you know, sort of maintain a warm up, but they also say if it's going to be more than 20 minutes of waiting, uh, you you might want a heated garment. And they give some suggestions in here for temperature of the heated garment. But I'm not sure how much we've we've looked into in climbing um, heated garments or keeping really warm between attempts when it's really cold outside. Lots of climbers love it cold. 
Black Diamond needs to release a full heated bodysuit on April Fool's <laughs> next year. yeah that would be fantastic lana when we go outside bouldering does carry a little um hot thing that she keeps in her pockets to keep her hands warm Um, i use mittens to keep my hands warm in the winter Uh, it keeps me warmer than gloves but i've also found that it also causes me to sweat a little more Mm -hmm. so if it's fingers that you're trying to keep warm i think that's another thing to keep in mind is we don't want to increase the amount of sweat that we're getting Another way I went when I was reading this, I immediately thought about competitions in ISO, you know, where you're sitting for who knows how long. And maybe this is stuff people don't think about a whole lot. Like, hey, my Mm -hmm. ISO could be anywhere from 20 minutes to I might be sitting in there for who knows how long. Maybe investing in. Yeah. So investing in ways to keep the body warm. You could walk out there feeling less cold, but walk out there feeling ready to roll. I was like, well, this is going to, yeah, but yeah. You could walk out there feeling less cold. Yep. And science and stuff makes it do that. <laughs> yeah. I think especially for like shoulders, elbows, you know, hips, knees, I think those things take a beating and we, we focus a lot on warming our fingers up. Um, but we hear of a lot of climbers getting their shoulders, elbows, knees, and hips injured. So, mm-hmm. uh, especially for competition climbers, I think it'd be smart to start considering some of that stuff. Yeah. That was, that was a cool little section in this paper to read. Yeah. Um, moving on to the systematic review of the effects of upper body warm up on performance and injury. Uh, there's a strong evidence that high load dynamic upper body warmups enhance both strength and power outcomes. Mm-hmm. And they mention in this section that Task-specific warm-ups were effective in baseball studies, but they needed more evidence to say that those task-specific warm-ups help in other domains. Mm-hmm. I certainly, uh, you know, this is me spouting off my my fictions here, but I certainly believe that task-specific warm-ups help in climbing. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, you know, climbing easy things might be helpful. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I do believe so. Uh, I think it's interesting there that that they say that high load dynamic upper body warmups enhance both strength and power outcomes. I think that's something we could keep in mind as climbers. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of goes hand to hand with what we just talked about with post activation potentiation. That is an example yep. of a high load dynamic warmup. So mm-hmm. um, one thing I thought that was interesting about later on in this section. Uh, maybe a high load dynamic warmup would not include climbing easy things with a weight vest because there's an example right. where they use a weighted bat. You know, we've heard these arguments before about climbing with a yeah. weight vest, how it's probably not a great idea. Um, this is another example of that where it throws off the mechanics of the movement and they used a weighted bat for a swing. Threw off the mechanics of the movement for the swing. They also found that the participants perceived their bat speed to be faster. So you may be feeling snappy. Right. There's a good chance it's probably not happening. Right. Totally. Yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons, you know, there've been that, I think that those findings have been repeated over and over a bunch of times. And that's one of the studies that I reference back to a lot when people come to me and say, should I be climbing with a weight vest on? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there are better ways to, to overload your, your climbing movements than by just doing a bunch of random boulder problems. Yeah. Uh, they say upper body static stretching of a duration less than or equal to 60 seconds had no impact on power outcomes. Mm-hmm. We talked about a similar thing in our stretching episode last season, uh, but it is good to see it on specifically upper body static stretching here. Yeah. Um, they mentioned that longer duration, greater than 90 seconds static stretching can also be conducted without performance decrement, Mm -hmm. uh, but more data is needed to validate this finding. So I think what I take from that is if you feel like you need more in order to get into a position or for whatever performance reason you, you feel like you need that longer bit of stretching, it may not be a bad idea. Yeah. So it's not a blanket statement that, you know, oh, you can never stretch more than 90 seconds. Context and situation is always going to play a factor. 
Yep. And this review sort of um, flies in the face of the, the critical review that we looked at a minute ago. And it says, passive heating and cooling warmups do not appear to have any significant acute performance effects. Mm -hmm. Although flexibility in days following fatiguing eccentric exercise, they got really specific here, can be enhanced with this mode of warmup. Yeah, so that's interesting. It just shows that maybe we need to keep looking at this. You know, yeah. I, again, I think it's a thing worth checking out. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a competitor and you find that your hamstrings get cold um, quickly, it may, maybe still wear some sweatpants in between just to see. Yep. You know. Yep. Do your own little study. And it says additional studies are needed to clarify the effects of upper body maximum isometric contraction, dynamic and PNF stretching and vibration training warmups. So they looked at all these things and didn't find that there was much of anything super conclusive on mm -hmm. these things. Um, the upper body maximum isometric contraction surprised me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seemed because I'm going back and looking at the section in the uh – in the paper, it seemed like the there weren't a whole lot of papers that looked at it. Only one study investigated of it. Yeah, I think a lot of them got stripped away. But that study did say that the five seconds of maximum contraction warm-up significantly increased the speed. So it's it's interesting. Maybe they just don't have the body of evidence there to make that claim, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I think so. I think if we look at individual studies and we, you know, take what they say, then these things are worth at least trying, um, you know, and, and seeing how they work for you or work for your athletes, uh, because there's definitely been evidence that dynamic stretching is helpful. Um, maximum isometric contractions can be helpful. Um, I don't know about vibration training warmups. Yeah. I, I haven't read anything about it, but I'm extremely skeptical to begin with. I can see all the climbing gyms having those, <laughs> those vibration band fat reducers that people yeah. had in the seventies. I wonder too, if they're talking about, we probably have to pull some of the studies, but maybe like those massage gun type of deal things too, mm, you know, that could be. Yep. And they also say that further investigation is especially needed across all warmup modes to validate recommendations of using warmups as a means of injury prevention. Uh, for me, as soon as you get into saying you can prevent injury, I think you're you're always going to have to respond with further investigation is needed. Yeah, we, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you're warmed up or not, you can still get hurt. So oh. tough, tough to say whether the warm up was helpful or not yeah, if you got injured. I would, you know, I would say and where I rank things and how we can maybe organize things to hopefully reduce the risk of an injury happening. I think a warm up is important. I think there's other things I would I think have a more have a greater impact on that. Like building a resilient body, um being comfortable with different types of movements, being familiar with positions, so on and so forth. Mhm. Mm um, looking at the third review that I pulled out, I've got a couple things highlighted here I'd love to talk to you about. Um, number one, they say that they, they also looked at swings um, mm -hmm. for a baseball bat and lighter weighted bat swings and isometric swings showed to be promising strategies to acutely improve swing velocity. Um, so I guess just holding it in a, you know, mid swing position mm -hmm. and pushing against that. And they were using lighter bats, um, in one of these studies. So that's I thought interesting. that was, yeah, I thought that was interesting. And then they also go on to say that they support the prescription of overweight implement throws prior to competition, um, when the aim is for maximum distance. Mm -hmm. So how do we balance those two things out? Do either of them have any relevance to climbing at all? Man, I think one of the things, if we just come thinking about it in the lens of the bat swinging, where an overweight throw could be helpful, helpful for a bat swing performance, well, a heavy bat swing couldn't be, 
is the intention. When we throw something, we're not trying to decelerate it. We're a bat. We're always going to decelerate the bat at the end of the swing. So the mechanics are a little bit different there. The intent is just maximum force generation in a throw. So maybe that's why we've got a bit more transfer there. So how we go about climbing there, maybe, you know, throwing in some of those jug rung campus throws where we're pulling and going as high as we can without the intention of latching a hold, Um, reducing maybe the need for precision in some of these movements, but more just about output, I think is one of the takeaways from that. Just hearing it at first glance, that's what I think. Yeah, that's sort of what I get from it too. And I, I've used um, specifically to improve campusing performance, which I know is a, you know, <laughs> who knows if that in- increases climbing performance or not. But when I've had athletes who are like, I've been stuck on one, five, seven and a half for two years, how can I increase to one, five, eight? And we determine that's actually the goal is increasing to 158. We have done some weighted pull throughs mm-hmm. um, and and then tried 158 again, and then it goes very often. So, so I do think when the skill is a little less specific, like a like a boulder problem would mm-hmm. be a far higher skill level than just a campus move, um, then I think it can be really useful. So yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting. Yeah. They say movement specific combinations appear to be more successful in producing a performance improvement in agreement with recent reviews on whole body acute uh, performance post activation performance enhancement. The coach and practitioner may wish to utilize some of the upper body conditioning activities highlighted in this current review. Coaches and practitioners should, however, interpret the data with caution owing to the many limitations in the previous literature that are highlighted throughout. Basically, what this is talking about is when warming up, um, movement-specific combinations appear to be more successful in producing performance improvement. So um, going past that general warm-up into really specific movement patterns that you're going to be using for your sport. I think it's another great um, point in the maybe we don't do just our normal general prep, warm our fingers up and jump right on the hardest climb. Yep. Make our climbing warm up look like rock climbing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think we're seeing it in all these other sports, um, even these upper body specific sports. Um, that's what this last review looked at as well. So for me, I have to go that route. Let's, uh, let's talk a little more about the application here. I got all these little pieces. Like, they're all part of the story, right? But they don't mean much on their own. But when you start telling me what you know, we start filling in the gaps. I'll have them in lockup before the sun goes down. All right. I think personally, I think A, warmups are important. And B, that particularly in this social media era, I think they're a little bit misunderstood. Um, I've heard coaches say that anything more than 15 minutes warming up is wasting your time. I've heard, I've heard climbers out at the crag quote what they think coaches are saying. And telling me that by doing progressively harder climbs leading up to my project, I'm risking injuring myself <laughs> because I didn't just warm up on a flashboard. So I'm positive that it's misunderstood by at least a few people. I think a lot of folks are just missing the forest for the trees, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe, maybe some of science is missing it as well to some degree. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, looking at these two papers, obviously there's going to be a fairly large degree of variability between how each individual should warm up. Um, They've got time constraints to figure in. They've got equipment constraints. They've got goals that may require a different warm up. But I think, you know, this is a pretty solid body of evidence that some form of warm up that gets you moving is relatively specific to the task you're trying to do Mm -hmm. might involve higher force or power output is probably a good thing to do. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. I, I think so for sure. So based on this, based on your experience, um, what does a warm up look like for you, generally speaking? 
Um, outside, I'm also pretty notorious for having an abbreviated warm up, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think that might be just too too impatience. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so my warm up when I'm doing a training session or when I'm trying to send a bouldering project, I will get out to the boulder field. I'll oh, do a few body weight something. movements. Um, sometimes I've brought Indian clubs out to the, uh, to the boulder field to get the shoulders mm-hmm. moving a little bit. But my warm up is I do do some submaximal bouldering or I do one or two yeah. pitches of submaximal rope climbing. Sometimes I just bolt to bolt the project and skip through certain sections or run mm-hmm. sections again. Um, but yeah, there's a ramp up. Um, I'm focusing on intention and generating force. Uh, Sometimes I don't bring a flashboard out just because my pack's too small for my things and I can't fit it in there. So, you know, I'm, I'm a great example of just poor tactics a lot of times too. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I'll find some edges and do recruitment style pulls on some edges mm-hmm. to make sure I'm ready to generate those, those forces. But yeah, it involves my warm up involves a relatively specific ramp up of force and output that gets me ready for what I need to do. How about you? Yeah, mine is, mine is pretty darn similar. Um, I love the, the flashboard, uh, and those types of tools, um, for the ease that they provide. But I think I get more out of, um, grabbing small, horrible, painful holds and pulling on those um, at the same time as it's warming my tendons and my pulleys up, it's also preparing me to grab nasty, hateful little holds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what a lot of hard climbing looks like, frankly. So, so I need that. I do a lot of just on the ground, dynamic swinging around of my legs and my arms. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not getting younger, my knees, my hips, my shoulders, my hamstrings all need to be feeling a certain way. Um, so I put a lot of intention into those things, getting them warmed up and getting them ready. And whether or not there's a physical change in those, in those parts of my body, if I feel more confident in them, I'm going to try harder. I'm not going to waste attempts. I'm not mm-hmm. going to waste skin. Um, so for me, I have to do it. And my just on the ground stuff can take 15 minutes yeah. by itself before I even start climbing. And and I'll do a fair amount of climbing before I try the project, partly because I feel better if I'm if I've climbed myself into performance mode, partly because Unless it's like the ultimate project of my life, I, I want to climb other things, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think um, one of my favorite memories is when we were out in Landers the first day and you were warming up and Taylor was with us and you're moving your hands around and getting the fingers ready. And Taylor asked <laughs> if you were casting spells. So <laughs> <laughs> That's what we should just call that, casting spells. Yeah. So, oh, it's yeah. been used many times <laughs> since. So. <laughs> but um, I think it's a cool note, that. Joe, as we just talked about both of our warmups. It had a lot of the similar principles, but there was a lot of individual variation there. So anyone yeah, who's telling totally. you there's one warmup, you have to do this, I'd look for a second opinion or gather some more data so you can make an informed decision. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we also have to take into account we're warming up for a pretty complicated sport that involves a whole lot more than just performing at your physical best. Um, you know, let's, if we take something into, uh, into consideration, like say the long jump, um, yes, it's incredibly hard physically, even in the long jump, there are going to be some mental gymnastics that these athletes have to perform. You know, they have to believe in themselves. They have to be ready to, you know, these takeoffs require some belief and that the steps are right and that they're going to hit the takeoff platform right. And, you know, there's, there's all this stuff in the head that has to happen too. And in climbing, at least for me, it's even more so. Mm -hmm. So I have to be ready to feel like I can perform. I have to be, you know, ready to climb above a bolt. If it's, if it's a high ball, I have to get ready for that. If it's, you know, something that requires extreme intensive effort, you know, single hard moves. I have to be ready to give that. <laughs> if I have to get super pumped, I have to be ready for that. So there's a lot more 
to warming up than just making sure you're, you know, checking boxes and making sure you've warmed up each body part. Right. Yeah. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. And I, you know, it's outside of the scope of these reviews to go into that, but I, I do think it has to be mentioned. Yeah. So, uh, anything else from you in this, in the, in these, I think, you know, I think the science on warming up is pretty clear. I think you distilled it down really well to the couple of principles that we need to keep in mind. Yeah, no, I think it's great to have these reviews. You know, we're able to look at a lot more studies and a lot more information, which is always nice because it gives us a little bit greater degree of applicability to things. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good to look at these. And I think we're coming out of this with some principles that can be useful for folks when designing or choosing their warm up. Yep. All right. You can find both Paul and I all over the internets by following the links right there in your show notes. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You can find the season two sponsor of Breaking Beta at gonarly.com. You should do that. Use the code beta15 for 15% off. And if you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up, community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and please tell all of your friends who warm up their fingers on a flashboard and think they are ready to try their absolute hardest that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you next week for the final episode of the season when we discuss beta alanine supplementation and whether or not it could help you clip chains on your Nemesis sport project. We'll see you then. It's done. You keep saying that and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay. You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Drunk Naughty, yo, yo.